Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, you can read me on Bleacher Report, and you can follow me on Twitter at Rick Buker. Now, I, as I promised in the last Buker Friendless, I had planned to make this podcast about another tectonic plate shift in the NBA, as in a change that happens behind the scenes or below the surface that you don't as much see as you feel. Now, the previous one took place in 2010, in what I like to refer to as the Summer of LeBron. That was a shift that I was actually contracted to write a book about by Houghton Mifflin before my employer at the time, ESPN, got involved. The book was written and simply was never published. That's what I was going to talk about. But then a few of you reminded me that I never made good on my promise to talk about what Oracle Arena, the Golden State Warriors now former home, meant to me and why when it came to my career. By the way, for those of you who also responded to my request on the tone that you guys wanted to hear with the podcast, thank you very much for that uh, input and insight. It reaffirms what I thought and allows me to go forward with more confidence that I am giving you exactly what you want. So anyway, This podcast is going to be about that instead before I disappear into the Big Sur wilderness on a surf trip for a few days. Uh, This retreat, by the way, is a tradition I began not long after I started covering the Warriors as a beat writer for the San Jose Mercury News. I generally took it for a few days in April back then because the Warriors were never in the playoffs. And the earliest the paper asked me to cover the playoffs on a national perspective was maybe a spot game or two in the second round and then the Western Conference Finals and then the NBA Finals. So once the Warriors' exit interviews were over, there was generally a window of two or three days where you could reasonably be sure nothing would happen that was newsworthy. And unlike beat writers today who seemingly have to churn out content on multiple platforms on a daily basis, seemingly on an hourly basis sometimes, it wasn't like that. Uh, Not when I started. So still, though, 
This was at the advent, it gives you an idea of how long ago we're talking. This was at the advent of internet, cell phones, all of that. Um, and so it generally took me about 24 hours. Maybe, I don't know if it's more or less than it is today. It's the thought that I've just occurred to me. Because it was a new element where you could be plugged in all the time, uh, it, it was a new, it was sort of a shock to the system. And it's actually something that, that we all were enthralled with because you could. You could be constantly connected. You had new and different forms of communication. It was supposed to make things easier and simpler and life better. And I don't know that it's accomplished that. The, the most shocking thing was going uh, going to a streamlined system and finding that our deadlines were earlier than ever. None of us, I don't know that we've ever been able to figure out exactly how or why that was. In any event, the internet was still a relatively brand new thing outside of the academic world. And I want to say I was rocking a Motorola flip phone at the time and soon to graduate to a BlackBerry, which I still miss to this day. Uh, typing on a BlackBerry is uh, Mark Stein, my colleague from the New York Times, who I believe still has one, still uses one. It, there's just no comparison typing on a screen uh, versus an actual keyboard. Anyway, uh, Mark Cuban's another one, I think, who still uh, has a, a BlackBerry in the arsenal. Anyway, once I stopped having the itch to find a payphone and check my messages, and yes, payphones were still a thing in certain remote locales. If I Again, I think I, I used the payphone to call to get the messages on my cell phone because my cell phone wouldn't work. That makes sense. And I made the mistake one time of uh, deciding to call and get my messages the night before I was leaving. And it put, it just it broke all of the calm and serenity that I had, uh, that I'd been able to develop because suddenly had all these messages and it was all stuff that I needed to take care of when I got back and that last night was miserable. So I learned my lesson. I don't know that I've ever done that again. I make a point of I'm going to go down, I'm going to cut myself off and I'll deal with everything when I get back. Try to do a better job of putting out all the fires before I leave, but nonetheless, uh, the purpose doesn't really work unless I just completely shut myself off. And as I say that, I'm going to violate that rule uh, on this particular trip because I have to make a work call on Monday and find a spot where I can get reception to make that call. So anyway, uh, there you go. Um, but at the time when I first started, um, it did allow me to relax in a way that I couldn't during the course of the season. And I'd bring books I wanted to catch up on. Uh, big Sur, by the way, was and is the place for me. I've always been a big Jack Kerouac fan big Henry Miller fan. There's a library down there. The vibe that I first felt the first time I drove down and went to a place called the Penthe and had uh, dinner uh, on a on a balcony uh, overlooking or a deck overlooking the coastline. Uh, I don't know what it is, but something spoke to me and that's always been the place where uh, I go to disappear. Uh, I'm fortunate enough that I uh, live just a couple hours drive away from it. Um, but it feels like I'm in a completely different universe when I do. And just as an aside, I don't know whether this is part of my connection to that place, 
but I grew up with this batik screened whatever um, on my wall that uh, that my mom had created. And I didn't know, and it was Big Sur, but I didn't know anything about Big Sur. I didn't know where it was. And it was a an outline of the cliffs. And that hung over my bed for years and years and years. And I really, but I didn't really, it was just a cool thing that my mom had made. I didn't really know where it was or what it meant or any of that. So I wonder if some of that has to do with, I don't know, why I have the connection that I do or maybe I was predestined. Um, read some Chem, chem Nun novels if you want to get into the whole mix of surrealism and uh, mystical things and surf and the California coastline. All right, um, moving on. So I'd bring books I wanted to catch up on. I'd probably bring some Kerouac or Henry Miller so I could feel the vibe uh, of being down there. And I'd try to write some some awful you know, fiction, short stories. I'd run on a few trails. Mostly I just kind of sit back and the, so there's something about being in the woods remotely like that. The the light cascading down through the redwoods and uh, I don't. I always think of the smell of freshly brewed coffee. I could smell it and taste it in a way that I can't anyplace else. And I probably took a surfboard with me, but the surf was rarely good at that time of year. And I didn't know the spots around Big Sur as I do now. So didn't spend a whole lot of time in the water from what I recall. Now, that seems like another life. As does my first time walking into Oakland Coliseum Arena, as Oracle was known back in 1992 when I first took over the Warriors beat. Now, the first time I remember actually being in the building was 1991. It was a practice day during the playoffs, rare Warriors appearance in the playoffs. They were the second round series. I remember it had to be the second round because it was against the Lakers. And I remember seeing and meeting Mike Dunleavy for the first time. Uh, so uh, a season later, I began covering the team full time, replacing what was a Bay Area sports writing legend, Ron Bergman. And I believe it was suspected that his relationship with Don Nelson had become a little too chummy, but I'm not exactly sure why they moved him off the beat. It was always a dream of mine to cover an NBA team, and that's all I knew, that the opportunity was being presented. Um, all in, And so all I know is that they, they did move Bergie off the beat, and and I never had to worry about getting too chummy with Nelly in part because of who, who I was replacing, who Nellie was very fond of. Um, so I was hitting a bit of a career reset myself at the time. I'd been originally hired to cover the San Francisco 49ers, one of the plum beats in all of sports at the time, especially with the 49ers in full-blown dynastic mode at that time. Uh, the only problem was that I had not grown up in the Bay Area had not been living there. I mean, basically moved to the Bay Area in order to take the 49ers beat. I'd followed basketball, soccer, baseball as a fan more than football. And honestly, when I took the job, I couldn't turn it down. But I went to work each day terrified 
that I was going to make some mistake that the devout 49ers fans among my readers and the Bay Area at that time was as overrun with 49ers fans as it is Warriors fans now, that they would find something I had written as naive or ill-informed or just flat out wrong about their beloved team. And as I said, this was a plum beat, a plum job. You were presumably supposed to be one of the best NFL beat writers uh, in, in the country. And I don't know that I was that starting out. In fact, I know that I wasn't. So I, I lasted about two years on the beat before a new sports editor who placed the one that hired me and I mutually agreed that I should do something else. I've, I've found that when it comes to beat work, when it comes to covering a particular sport, you need to love that sport. You need to have a passion for it or it's going to be work. It's going to be hard. The constant 24-7 way that you have to approach the job to be good at it is going to be a struggle. And so it was. Now, I was also having a hard time letting go of the partying lifestyle I'd adopted in college. So I needed to hit the reset button in more ways than one. I moved over to college sports for a year, got my act together overall, and then jumped at the chance to move back to a pro sports beat by covering the Warriors. My first move when I when I was given the beat was to ask uh, Nelly if we could meet so I could introduce myself, which led to my first official visit as a Warriors beat writer to the arena. Uh, this was before the arena's interior was completely remodeled about three years later. At the time, the coach's office was a room you had to pass on your way to the player's locker room. I walked in that day to find Nelly with his three assistants, Greg Popovich, Paul Pressey, and his son, Donnie Nelson, all waiting for me. Uh, I told them who I was, where I came from. I remember all of them sitting on, on one side of the room, and they were all in their chairs, and I walk in, and I felt like it was a job interview, or <laughs> it, it was... It just, I felt like I was walking into the lion's den, to be honest with you. So, but I walked in, told him who I was, where I came from, all part of my kind of my reset uh, overall, and tried to strike a deal about our working relationship. I, I promised never to have a hidden agenda or be unclear about what I was trying to write about. In exchange, I hoped that Nelly and the staff would never purposely mislead me about something going on with the team. I know you might not be able to answer every question I have, I said. I just ask that you not purposely steer me in the wrong direction. So, as I mentioned, Nelly was leaning back in his desk chair, sort of, I mean, he was, he was a big guy, had a lot of weight issues, and he was sort of a human avalanche from the sweep of the hair that hung over his eyes. I mean, he was he was a big guy, he was an older guy, but he still had this boyish, boyish nature about him and uh, the hair kind of sweeping in front of his, his eyes was part of that. So from, from, the, from, from the hair that was like a school kid down to the running shoes he'd wear with a hole cut out on the side of his big toe to accommodate a bunion, he, he looked down and he said, well... Uh, his, I remember his chin was almost resting on his on his chest. I'm going to lie to you if I have to. Okay, then, I said. 
I'm sure I laughed about his extreme honesty as I walked out to my car. Not at the time. I might have smiled, but <laughs> I mean, he basically given me his ground rules. Um, by the way, so uh, the car I was walking out to at that time was a wide, uh, white Ford Escort with San Jose Mercury News written in big blue and grief, green font wrapping the middle of the car frame. Uh, legible, quite possibly, from outer space. It was not a good-looking car. It was an Escort, first of all. No no offense, Ford, but it was an Escort, white, and then big green and blue masthead uh, taking up. I remember the, the, like the, the side doors were just covered by it. Um, this is how much of a dummy I am, by the way. I would say I'm a bit of an aggressive driver, although... I'd also like to think I've mellowed quite a bit. But at that time, uh, I was a young man in his 20s with places to go. And I lived in the South Bay at the time. Um, shortly after taking the beat, I moved up to the city, took advantage of living in the city. Some of the greatest times living in San Francisco. Still love it to this day. Still may move back there at some point. In any event, I lived in the South Bay at the time, uh, still in the apartment I had rented to be near the 49ers Santa Clara practice facilities because while they played at Candlestick, uh, their practices were down in Santa Clara. And so that's where I, I got my apartment when I moved to the Bay Area. Uh, the Warriors did not have a set practice facility. This didn't date me a little bit, but this gives you a sense of how much has changed. They either practiced at the arena or at a little bandbox of a gym belonging to a community college in Alameda. Now think about that in context with the facilities we see now for NBA teams. An NBA team today is regarded as behind the times or seriously inconvenienced if they don't have a practice facility attached to or literally inside their arena. And certainly they're going to have their own dedicated practice facility. And of course, when we say practice facility... Uh, it has to be more than just a practice court. We're talking expansive weight room, cryotherapy chamber, therapy pool, player lounge, kitchen, cafeteria, you name it. I was thinking about it. Run TMC, Chris Mullen, Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond. Run TMC had none of that. Chris Weber and Billy Owens and Latrell Sprewell, they didn't either, at least not at the beginning of their careers. And for some reason, the Chicago Bulls capture this evolution in the NBA best for me. Uh, I think about, maybe it's because all the years covering them in the finals, but I think about the migration they made from a practice facility, the Birdo Center, which was out in Deerfield, a.k.a. middle of nowhere, while playing games in old Chicago Stadium. Then they built and moved into the United Center to play their games, but they're still training and practicing out at the Birdo Center, and then finally constructing a lavish practice facility right next to uh, the United Center. In most NBA cities, you couldn't, back then, you know, back back in the 90s, you couldn't cover practice and a game without renting a car. And obviously this was pre-Uber as well. But just to get around, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of places you'd go or if you had to get a taxi... You might be waiting 45 minutes for that taxi to show up, if, if you could get it to show up in one of these remote, remote places. All right, so bottom line is, 
That first season covering the Warriors, I was constantly fighting traffic to get up to practice and back and had no second thoughts about weaving in and out of traffic, giving the occasional stink eye to some slow poke in the fast lane, all while driving, mind you, a highly visible and identifiable San Jose Mercury News company car. Now, I sort of, my sports editor finally pulled me aside one day and said, hey, I got a call about some maniac driving up I-80, terrorizing people in a San Jose Mercury News car. We figured out, based on the time and place and the description of the driver, that it must be you. So slow the f*** down. <laughs> he kind of said it with a smile. I think he appreciated the the go get him attitude. I think. I think. Anyway, uh, the importance of local beat writers was far greater then to the public and the teams because we were the primary conduit between the two. I remember when I was covering the 49ers and Bill Romanowski. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The crazy linebacker sidled up to me in what was an unusually friendly manner. Major departure from the usual glare he had, disdain, absolute disdain for reporters. And he asked if I could put something in the paper about a camp or event he was having. That, that's, that's a time where if you wanted to advertise something, if you wanted something out to the public, the newspaper was the way to get it. It was pre-Craigslist, pre-a pre lot of things that uh, stole the newspaper's thunder. I would say Craigslist was probably the biggest undermining event uh, of all things. Now, this was also a time when the Mercury News, in particular, was a stickler for not providing free advertising to companies that bought the naming rights to stadiums and arenas or pretty much anything else. Uh, when, when it became Monster Park or whatever, uh, I'm trying to think that the various names that Candlestick Park, it was always Candlestick Park in the San Jose Mercury News. So, as an aside, I can tell you there were a lot of rules back then to protect the paper's integrity, or at least to give the, I thought at times, the impression that the paper's integrity was being protected. I, to this day, feel that you either trust the integrity, you either hire and trust the integrity of the people that are reporting and understand the way they operate, or somehow, some way. If they want to try to get around it, if they want to violate rules, they will. Uh, but uh, some of those rules, aside from not using the uh, the companies that were sponsoring teams and stadiums, uh, there was a $25 limit on gifts either to or from someone who might, not it was, but just might be a past, present, or future subject of a story. Participating or collaborating on any sort of event or project with an athlete or a coach or almost anybody associated with a team, 
was prohibited. And of course, sourcing had an entirely different uh, approach. Your editors had to knew, know who your sources were. Your sources had to clearly be two different lines of communication or information. And agents were like, you could not use an agent. Agent was not considered trust, trustworthy whatsoever. It had to be somebody directly related. And relatives had to be somebody connected directly to the team. Now, the teams were far more forthcoming and willing to negotiate uh, or work with you because they knew how much you knew and they knew the power that you had in communicating how they were doing their job and what they were doing. So um, the rules were also enforceable back then because writers and editors were in the same locale. And the editors were often former beat writers who still had a few contacts in the sports world and couldn't would check up on how a reporter was conducting him or herself if the editor had any suspicions. So for all of you, you who decried mainstream media and celebrated the advent of new media and blogs and basically taking uh, the job of reporting and covering uh, events, people, places, things, just understand that turning it into the wild, wild west uh, eliminated many, if not all, of the safeguards in terms of the credibility, the integrity of the information that you're receiving. Now, now it's incumbent upon you that you understand that you have to vet your own, uh, your own information. You have to do your own double checking. And that's infinitely harder for you to do than it would be for the editors who were deeply connected to the material that I was covering or anybody else was covering. So it's changed the onus. And I get the sense that most people don't really want to go to that trouble. They're going to read and believe what they want to believe. I, that My experience covering this free agency convinces me more of that, of that more than ever. The number of people who came after me because I was saying that Kevin Durant was going to leave the Warriors, Warriors fans that I, for the most part, and just vicious calling me a clown because I was reporting something that they did not want to believe was going to happen. That's that's where we are. So I've learned to laugh at it on most days, but it is a big change. Now, now I and and the safeguards within uh, the business simply aren't there. I, I see my editors at Bleacher Report a couple of times a year. I and now I still see writers and reporters who have been drummed out of the company or the business because the integrity of their work does come into question, but it takes a while, sometimes a year or more. And that's a long time and a lot of stories. And I don't, look, BR is not the exception by any means in how this works, where everybody's working sort of remotely. Um, I don't know of a website-based publication that works under a different model. And, and I am in regular contact with my editors by phone and email about what's going on. My work is vetted by more than one layer of editors before it is published. BR has taken a lot of steps to grow from where they started. 
I would venture to guess BR's process is actually more exacting than most sports websites these days, and it's certainly more exacting than it was when BR started. They've made a point of, of doing that. Uh, so, one, I appreciate that. And two, you know, we don't we don't get it perfect. We're not going to because of the speed with which everything is done, how quickly it can be put out there, how quickly there is the simply the impetus to put things out there. But nonetheless, BR's doing as, as good a job as any outfit that I know at this point. Uh, but it is different. It's way different from where it was when I started. Now, the status of beat writers, a more centralized media force, and the world before 9-11 allowed some freedom that would be unthinkable today. When I first started covering the league, there were still a handful of coaches who let beat writers come in on a regular basis and watch all the practice, and Nelly was one of them. I know now it was invaluable in getting a true read on why some guys played, some guys didn't, what the coach was trying to implement. Now, the understanding was we weren't going to make a big deal out of something that was part of the natural ebb and flow of a team season. Two guys get into a shoving match. Coach gets on a guy for not playing hard enough. Uh, or if it appeared there was a lineup change, we might ask about it, but you didn't just you didn't just run with it. You kind of you found out what the coach had to say about it. You you were looking for clearance on on a, on a certain level. You were given access, you were giving special special access, and then you repaid that by being respectful about what it was that you reported. Because again, at that time, you put it in the newspaper, that was living in the news cycle for a good 24 hours. Now, something lives half an hour, an hour. Maybe it lives for a day or two, depending. But things get washed over pretty quickly. We become numb to some of this stuff. That wasn't the case then. So you had to be far more judicious and careful with what you were putting out there. Now... Today, so, you know, if, if, if people were in practice and there was a shoving match or whatever, that, that stuff would be out before practice was over, probably with photos and video. And in one respect, it does pull back the curtain for the public to consume everything and anything, but it also has inspired teams to operate and do more behind a curtain that no one gets to see. And I don't think it's a trade-off in the big picture, that benefits any of us, me doing the job or you as the consumer. The more I know and understand as a reporter or writer, the better I'm going to be able to paint a true picture of what is going on. It kind of goes back to my conversation with Nellie. I, as a reporter, may not be able to write everything I know, but I'm far less likely to put anything out there that is a mischaracterization. Apologies for digressing from the arena to the evolution of sports media, but they're kind of intertwined for me. When I, when I take this walk down memory lane in the arena, the, you know, the, the context of the job uh, is, is hard to separate from my experience. Uh, example, back when I started, the beat writer's exalted status meant we had a seat on the floor at the scorer's table for every game. And again, we could hear and see plenty that the cameras didn't capture. We saw and heard 
in part because we were so familiar with the team. We knew where to look. We knew just had, we knew what to look for. We were more informed than the public. I feel as if that's not always the case now. There's people with great seats, better seats than the media, and they know more. So now you're sometimes getting information filtered through fans. Again, not being vetted, not knowing what the motives of particular people seated certain place are. Just gets it's it's messier. But at that time, we can hear and see as much or more than anybody else. Not all of which we wrote. The rules of engagement were handed down from veteran writers and reporters to the next wave. That's that's how I kind of remember it. And it wasn't in a direct sit you down and these this is how you do it. It was more by anecdotes and fables. There's an old story about baseball writers in Babe Ruth's day sitting in the bar car of a train. It tells you how long ago this was. Trains being the main mode of transportation back then and media and teams alike traveled on the same trains. I actually had that experience very start of my career covering soccer and indoor soccer team would fly commercial and I'd often be on the exact same planes that they were again, sort of access and insight that enriched the way that I covered the team and the sport. I digress once again. Anyway. uh, So there's this story, baseball writers, they're on the train, they're in the bar car. Of course they are. They're sports writers. And uh, they were going to wherever the Yankees were going to play next. And all of a sudden, the bar car door bursts open and a butt-naked Babe Ruth comes sprinting through it. Followed seconds later by a beautiful woman, also sprinting, also butt-naked, except for a bedsheet wrapped around her, and she's brandishing a knife. And the table of reporters exchange glances. And then one of them finally says, It's a good thing we didn't see what we just saw or we'd have to write about it. That's a story I remember being told to me by some, I don't know who it was. Might have been Bergie for all I know. But you got the message and you understood. So we weren't quite like that, but life around Nelly was closer to that realm than it was today, for sure. And... Truth be told, I undoubtedly violated that understanding more than anyone ever had before. Why and how, I'll get into in a bit, but it goes back to my first meeting with him. As I saw it, we could have an understanding if I could trust him. And Nellie flat out told me I couldn't. So, I appreciated his stark honesty, but it put me in the position of not taking him at his word. And to this day, there are... Uh, Warriors fans who think I'm a bad guy for that reason. I'm just telling you why we had the relationship that we had. And I could say that that was, without question, the most troubled relationship that I've ever had with anybody in the league. So, there you have it. I mean, look, how could I take him at his word? He, He told me, basically, I'll lie to you. Now, all of that put me in direct odds with all the other beat writers who had been covering the team almost as long as Bergie had. The routine, by the way, went like this. We covered the game, sitting courtside. We went in the locker room to interview Nelly in his office, 
And then we went in the players, uh, went in the locker room, the players' locker room, interviewed them. And then we'd return to our courtside seats, we'd write, and we'd file our stories. Now, I don't know how it first started, but someone got the idea of seeing if we, I mean, we're sitting out there, there's this beautiful court, there's probably a rack of basketballs somewhere nearby, or we've seen them carted off. Anyway, I don't know how it first started, but somebody got the idea, hey, I wonder if we could play pickup on the court when we're done. My guess is it was facilitated by John Marvel, who was an editor of one of the papers at the time, uh, and a Charles Oakley-type pickup player. And he was married to Julie Marvel, the Warriors Media Relations Director. Anyway, wasn't long before we had full-court runs going after nearly every home game. Visiting writers who were hoopers would be alerted, and they knew to bring a bag of gear with them to the game. And... Some enterprising young fans who caught wind through the pickup grapevine started coming to games and hiding somewhere in the arena until the game started up and then they'd filter down and join in. And as I noted, this was pre-9-11. So there was, there was precious little security. The arena manager who just uh, passed away recently uh, was the only guy that we had to negotiate around. And I think we, we were playing and he, he put his foot down, and then we signed waivers. I mean, we started playing these pickup games without injury waivers, without anything. Uh, we signed the waivers, and then we uh, we were able to to play. Probably still violating some sort of rule, but in any event, most nights it was the janitors and the custodial workforce cleaning up the seats, and us. And every now and then, if a player stayed late for treatment, they'd walk out and watch us for a few few minutes. So I remember. Uh, Mully, uh, Chris Mullen coming out at one point and watching and recognizing that I was a lefty like he was. And next time I saw him, uh, commented about that. And years later, got an opportunity to play pickup with Mully, Mark Jackson, Mike Breen. And it was one other, I want to say Steve, Steve, Steven Stylus Jr., there's somebody else in any event oh you know what it might have been mitch richmond okay so anyway um the short of it is i never had a greater motivation to file my story as soon as possible there were times the first game would start and i'd still be writing and i can remember hammering out those last few paragraphs in a full sweat running to the media bathroom changing into basketball gear sprinting out to get into the next game Every now and then we'd have to pause, you know, the action when when someone's editor would call with a question, but otherwise, the place was ours. And I mean, just think about it: an NBA arena belonging to a bunch of pickup hoops players, hoops players in the media, no less, playing midnight and beyond. It was a good time. All of this made that arena a place that I knew intimately in some ways more intimately than the players or coaches because fact is I was there as much or more than they were. When it was, uh, they shut it down in 2005, they were going to, we're looking at, do we tear it down and rebuild? Do we move? What do we do? Ultimately, they decided to, they lifted the top half of the building and they completely remodeled the insides. It was around 1996, if I'm not mistaken. 
and it lost some of that intimacy for me. But if I remember, we were still having our share of light, late night games even after the remodel, but was never quite the same. Now, on the nights when the arena wasn't available, by the way, and situations where they were changing out the floor or there was some post-game event, uh, I would drive back to the Mercury News building down south, and there was a court out in the parking lot. This is, I remember this happening on weekends. Uh, we'd pull up a couple of cars, we put the headlights on, and a group of writers and copy editors and production people would run pickup out in the parking lot once the paper had been put to bed, and we'd go sometimes till 2, 3 a.m. It was, it was a good deal. You could do that, again, California, uh, particularly in the summertime or the fall, and particularly at night and on weekends. It was a good deal. Uh, so, for a young single guy like myself, who loved the bas- game of basketball in all its forms, it was a pretty sweet existence. Now, while 9-11 inspired a whole new set of security measures for places where the public gathered en masse, other events at the arena also had a big effect on a change that happened while I was there. I'll share what those events were in part two of my stories about the Warriors' old home. Thank you for listening. Uh, Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want us to do something for you, screenshot the review and send it to at Friends. As I said, until the next time, as always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.